one one of the 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 points that you made let's we'll we'll catch up with some of the other stuff but one of the points that you made was that we covered only four of the eight full noble paths yeah i believe so all right so let's let's go ahead and cover uh the rest of it so that we have a complete path mm-hmm. all right the first thing that we have to know is uh, there's an issue about cause and effect relationships in the sense of what is the cause and what is the effect. All right? Because that's often confusing. Generally what happens is that people will see the effect first and then they see the cause, but they see them separately, and they think the result caused the cause because they saw the result first. Yeah. And so we make that, um, that's part of our mental con- connection systems for humans, that we often get things backwards. Yeah, I've caught myself in that trap many times where I'll notice I'm complaining about something, but it's really not why I'm feeling that way. All right. Well, it's got a broader issue, um, but let's uh, apply it first to the Eightfold Noble Path and look at what is the cause, what's the condition, and what is the conditioner, and what is the conditioning or the effect. <clears throat> what is the conditioner and what is the conditioning? Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So, because if we understand it that way, then we can practice correctly. Normally, um, whenever an ind- a brand new person goes into a Wat or on the opening ceremonies of a uh, meditation retreat, especially if it's given by a monk, uh, in, in Asia it's frowned upon for uh, the lay people to uh, do the ceremony that is normally only done by monks. But the ceremony includes taking of the refuge and the five precepts. All done in Pali. Taking of the refuge? Taking of the refuge, okay? So okay. let me give you that first and then we'll talk about the, uh, the precepts. The taking of the refuge is uh, Buddham Saranam Gachami. Dhamam Saranam Gachami. Sangam Saranam Gachami. Dutiampi Budam Saranam Gachami. Perhaps you've heard this before. Perhaps maybe in a better sing songy way than. Okay, I don't think so. But... All right. And then the second part is the five precepts that are often also given in Pali. And that would start off with Panati Pata Ramani Sikabadam Samatiami and then Atena Dana Ramani Sikabadam Samatiami. And in these five precepts, this is what is covered in uh, the Eightfold Noble Path. All right. So what they're saying is, is that if you take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, this is called the Triple Gem, taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, and then also with the precepts, 
when one is holding and keeping the precepts, the combination of this can be thought of and known to be the, the state of Sotapan. Is when someone fully takes the, uh, the Buddha and the Sangha and the Dhamma as refuge. Well, at a deeper level, taking refuge in the Sangha means going into the Sangha. Mm -hmm. It means being in it. <laughs> it's like you can't refuge. use the port. You can't so, use a port as a uh, as a harbor or as a refuge from the ocean unless you go the into water. the harbor. <laughs> well, yes, but uh, it's much safer in port. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> right, because they they put ports in places where the uh, the the amount of uh, turbulence and waves is very low naturally, and then they plan on making it even better. So. Okay, so you're saying you can't uh, take refuge uh, without going into port. Exactly. So you can't really take refuge in the Sangha without at least going into the Wat. Mm -hmm. And perhaps going in and going into the Sangha and taking the robes and ordination. So there's that level of it, of how, how much refuge are you going to take in, in the Sangha. And you could say that way also in the Dhamma that you can say, well, I don't want to be in port all the time. Yes, but if you get into turbulent water, you want to have a safe harbor immediately available. Mm -hmm. That's the, That would be the Dhamma. That's what Sati really is all about. But the important part, uh, taking refuge in the Dhamma, is also taking refuge in the Buddha in the sense of Many, many things, not just the individual Buddha himself, but the fact that you can find, um, in fact, the last thing that the Buddha said, which is quite important in this regard, he says, become a refuge unto yourself. So what that means is, is that we're taking refuge into the fact that we can, with that Dhamma and with a Sangha, can take refuge mm -hmm. and we can get out of all of our suffering. So we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. And when we can do that, then that takes a certain amount of um, enthusiasm, zeal, uh, uh, eagerness, uh, eager to practice the Dhamma, a deep knowledge of the Dhamma, etc. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the the point of doing it as a ceremony in the beginning of a retreat or on Buddha days at the temple. And for the children, they teach them these precepts, not as the fulfillment of the past, but rather this is how you've got to behave while you're too uh, lacking in wisdom to see what the path is for yourself. Okay. And we do that with our kids. We give our kids rules without teaching them why. And so many of the is... times, the, 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 uh, the whys that we give them are not true. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is that? What do I mean by that? Okay. Uh, you got to eat your broccoli before you have your cake. You got to eat your vegetables and then you can have dessert. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because mm, my parents want me to eat my vegetables. Or like. Pardon? 
because my parents wanted me to eat my vegetables. I mean, I guess it wouldn't really matter which one I ate first, but they just wanted the conditioning or like the habit, I guess. Well, that is, in fact, teaching the child the law of karma. You do your good, you do your good work first, eat the broccoli, and then you will get your reward uh, for it later by getting the cake. Okay, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, it certainly does, and it goes right down to a very, very deep level, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and so they affect, then they put this effect in there of the cause and the effect that if you keep these precepts, something good will happen. Mm-hmm. For one thing, you won't get beaten up so much. <laughs> you won't go to jail. But uh, the, the point here is, is that in the Eightfold Noble Path, when it's noble, it's backwards. That the ordinary beginning of life, we give children rules. And then people grow up uh, with those rules and continue to keep those rules, and they rules were never examined. Yeah. So are you saying okay? So they the what will like give the children the the rules, and this is kind of like how my parents would tell me like eat your vegetables and then you can have your cake. It's kind of like teaching about. You said like it's kind of teaching about the law of karma or like cause and effect right mm-hmm. um exactly. i thought we so i guess it's like yeah that makes sense but i thought like in a previous discussion uh, we were talking about like the five hindrances and i thought one of them meant like was like related to like societal programming or something like that of like having rules but not really that's what acting we're talking them out about instead again. of wisdom okay right Exactly. That's what we're getting around to, that we never wound up ever examining those rules. And this is what really the practice is about, is to examine everything, including all of our attachments to the rules that we've learned without ever uh, investigating them at all. Now we're going to investigate them completely. Okay. That's yeah. what the first four steps are, with starting then with the practice and the cause is sati to mm. wake up if you can't remember to practice you can't practice mm-hmm. we have to have sati okay that's that's quite amazing in fact it's, it's almost a dead ringer right? and people just they don't remember that or they it's like it that's something how <laughs> it's hard to say um when we keep focused on the fact that we have to wake up and stay focused, that we take on the challenge of sati, that I Mm -hmm. demand of myself to keep waking up and keep waking up. Okay. Okay? So that sati then, it becomes our causality. The first cause is to remember, then to practice properly. Then the second causality, or the uh, the next step in the line, that without waking up, we can't uh, take the right effort. But if we do take the right effort, and that's an important thing, and we'll get back to it many times. When we take right effort, then uh, that brings on, finally, the causality of right attitude. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Why? Because if we're taking the right effort, then we get what we're looking for and we feel satisfied because we got it. Basically right then and there. Right. Uh, yes. So basically then the very, very first cause was one's right view, which was to take on, I've got to wake up. Ooh, that's interesting. Okay, so you, it's like kind of a, a circle. Uh -huh. that, like we take on right view, and that allows you to have right sadi, right effort, exactly. right attitude. Uh -huh. It's like builds on each, or like one work, feeds into the other. And they run and circle around each other precisely. That's what you were getting at. Okay. One causes the other, causes the other, causes the other. All right, and so by that way they grow. But the basic one, the one that, that uh, actually the effort may be the springboard. If we do take the right effort, that's where the others will start to grow. Because with our right um, view, the right view is, I've got to watch what's going on. I've got to look. I've got to investigate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, that word got to do it um, is more of an energy or... Um, it's, it's not a drive, uh, it's more like an assistance. It's sort of like power steering. Okay? You guys nowadays, you don't even know what it's like to own a car that doesn't have power steering. No, you're <laughs> right, yeah, I have no idea. I think a lot harder. <laughs> My dad's told me these stories, but yeah, so, is that similar to like, I mean, like I had this desire to like kind of investigate. I mean, I feel like you're kind of talking right. like it, and that will but increase. it's like that continued renewal of that. Right. It will increase. The skill of that right view is um, actually it's wrapped up with our curiosity. The willingness to look, the willingness to know, even if we go and find things that we don't want to look at. So, um, I guess like, sorry if I'm taking too long or like asking too many questions, no, but it's important for you to understand. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> Why sit here and listen to me talk and not understand what I'm saying? <laughs> well, is that, sorry, I don't want to like interrupt you too many times, but yeah, you're right. Uh, so, see, it kind of reminds me of, like, kind of a seeking attitude, and I thought we were kind of trying to drop seeking. I thought seeking was, like, not good. Well, it... what you're talking about seeking there is like getting on a long train and taking a long journey to go to a long, faraway place to seek something. We're talking about seeking in the sense of right now. Okay. This is like an... Yes. Okay. It's. I think yeah, I, I can see that there's a different flavor. There's a different difference between seeking like i don't know maybe like you're thirsty and you need water and so you're like hunting around for a watering hole or something like that and it's like you're laser focused versus like the investigating that we're talking about right okay uh except that uh guess what it's your mind <laughs> the water hole is nearby all you have to do is look and there it is yeah it's not it's within you it's not it's not external. Right. So it's not like we're in a real... In fact, that's the whole imagination that people think, in fact, that watering hole or that uh, uh, good feeling 
or that uh, completeness or whatever it is that we're looking for is outside somewhere in the desert. We've got to go out seeking it because it's hard to find. Yeah, that's that's what a lot of my like meditation journeys felt like. It's like you're constantly seeking for that book or that teaching that'll really like illuminate you. Right. But exactly. you're talking about like the realization that it's like no right now. It's not out there, it's with you right now, in a sense. It's with you. And all you have to do is just there it is. Yeah. <laughs> have yourself a little drinky. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so when these four things run and circle around each other, it comes to the point of what the Buddha referred to as unification of mind. Now, this is an important quality because, in fact, um, uh, um, Sama Arya Samati is what we're talking about. What's the point or what's the last item or what's the big deal of the Eightfold Noble Path? In fact, right at the beginning of the sutta that we're referencing now, which is in uh, 117, the Great Forty, the first thing to question uh, the Buddha, uh, or the first thing that he says is, I'm going to teach you right unification of mind with its supports uh, and requisites. Okay, now the requisites are going to be the things that is required. Oh, wait a minute, factors, the factors and the requisites. So now we have talked about the the requisites, that these four things run in circle, right view, right sati, right effort, and right attitude. And when we gain that right attitude, that gives us kind of a unification of mind, a noble mind, a mind that's sharp and focused. Um, what uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm reluctant to use the word of uh, the enlightened mind because we're not talking about an enlightened being or a person nor are we talking about it over a long stretch of time. We're talking about the state of mind is when the mind is collected together. It's not scattered. It's not drawn. It's not wandering. It's, it's focused. Okay. That focused mind, one, when one is in that state, then because of that state of nobility, an example would be of not having a mind like that. This unified mind, this samasamati, um, which is then translated into the English, just to make sure that you know what we're talking about, it's translated as right noble concentration because the mistranslation of the word samati. It is translated as concentration. We're not talking about a concentrated mind. We're talking about a noble, unified mind. Okay, and a noble, you were saying a noble, unified mind. That's when we gathered all the factors and prerequisites. Um, all the factors, all the prerequisites, right. All the requisites. 
And along with that, with that noble mind will come the others. Mm -hmm. They follow along with the right unification of mind. So let's make sure that we understand first what the right unification of mind is. If the mind is unified, then there's no doubts. We're not hemming and hawing around and trying to figure things out. We know. We got mm -hmm. it. Unified. Okay. We looked. We saw. We got it. <laughs> we looked again to make sure, and then we're looking also. So we're continuing to investigate. But because of that continuous investigation, uh, we're just laying one deep knowledge on another over and over and over again. And now we're beyond doubt because we can see what's going on. That's a unified mind. Here's another example of the unified mind. Is, is that someone, uh, let us say, in the state of the unified mind, uh, there would be no lying. Why? Because lying is division between the truth and what I want. That mm -hmm. what the truth is, is good enough. Therefore, there's no reason to embellish it or to destroy it. Yeah. So we tell the truth when we're in the state of unified mind. Yeah, Now you're sense. beginning to understand where we're going with this, okay? In fact, what you could say is, is that the unification of the mind is what brings the mind about to the point that we could now finally follow the precepts because everybody breaks the precepts always on a regular basis in the ordinary mind mm -hmm. when the mind is filled with hindrances but when there's no hindrances in the mind then the mind is uh, pure pure of bad behavior okay and so we're naturally keeping the precepts mm. so that means then, uh, from what the what the way that the sutta is structured, is is that um, yes, it's probably a very good idea to teach our children about the society, but we should not teach them that that's the only thing, or even in the worst case, oh, you've got to go keep keep these precepts, and then you can become enlightened. Okay. Yeah. So it's not like. If you fail at doing this, then, like, you have no hope. Mm-hmm. It's a, that, you know... Say it's, so long as you keep doing that, there's no hope. As long as you keep... Whatever that is. As long as you, like, keep violating the precepts, there is no hope of you, like, um, having a unified mind or anything like that. When, in, when it's more like... Um, if we are, if we have a unified mind, we will not engage in these activities because there's no need to. You just figured it out exactly right. Yeah. So now you got it. Okay, we got it in the right order. Mm -hmm. The right order is the unification of the mind is what brings about the precepts. It's not keeping the precepts brings about the unified mind. Mm -hmm. That's the important part. Why? Yeah, because these important. precepts are in fact the, uh, the part of the Eightfold Noble Path, but they, they're, they're coming along for the ride. In other words, one will naturally abstain from taking things that are not given with the mind that's noble and unified. When the mind is noble, 
we're not going to be taking things. Why? Because we don't want anything. Why should we bother to steal it? Yeah, it's like, yeah, if you, it's kind of like how if you like donated to a church in order to get into heaven or something like that, or donated to the temple in order to like reach nirvana, like that's never going to work because like your heart's not in the right place. Or like that. Uh huh. Yeah. It's almost like a business deal. All right, I'll keep your rules. But it's transactional, you yeah. What I want. <laughs> but you can see our whole society is set up that way. Mm-hmm. But that's the ordinary um, uh, view of the world. And so we sh we'll go into um, actual right noble view at a later time. But today what we're looking at is looking at it from an overall perspective okay. that uh, the requisites bring about the noble mind, and the noble mind has the noble behavior and the noble speech and the noble right, uh, livelihood coming along. Mm -hmm. Because that's a natural outcome, or maybe, it's, but that's not the outcome. <laughs> the outcome actually is, is another uh, uh, noble unified mind, if we're practicing correctly. Is unified mind the same thing as like, I don't know, like I picked up like the heart of the Bodhi tree and it's like all about emptiness or voidness. Is that a, just a factor for emptiness or voidness or is it emptiness or voidness? The unified mind then is in fact a void mind or an empty mind. Okay, so it is. Because, because it's empty of greed, it's empty of the lies, it's empty of stories, it's empty of bad feelings. It's yeah, pretty yeah. well it there. <laughs> All of the stuff that causes dukkha is empty of, and that's the way that we want to look at it. Uh, mm. That things are empty in and of themselves. So why does a human go around adding their <laughs> table salt? Yeah. <laughs> of dukkha. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, they don't realize it gives them high blood pressure, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but I make it good. <laughs> so, um, things are, in fact, empty. But most importantly, what they're empty of is empty of a self. Empty of that's a whole. Empty of uh, value, as it were. Because what we value most is the self. That's our most invaluable thing. So when we value self, then we put a self on other things so it also becomes value in relationship to me. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example of gold. Bullion, bars, coins, the really good stuff. Not jewelry because that's normally... Um, let us say, uh, on the carrot scale, not not high, not at that high level, where the gold shops here in Thailand, and by the way, they have almost no jewelry shops at all, but they do have gold shops where people go and buy gold and necklaces and, and uh, jewel, where they buy their jewelry, but they're actually buying very, very high-grade gold. I think it's like 97% or higher than that. It's higher than 23 karat. High gold is really, really high quality. It's not 24 karat, but it is higher than 23. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so this stuff is expensive. Uh, um, <clears throat> it's gone from twenty to about twenty-five thousand baht for uh, a baht uh, Thai currency into one baht of gold. That in fact the bot used to come as a measure of, of of for gold. So one bat of gold is actually about fifteen grams. So that means that two bot is um, about an ounce. Yeah. But never mind any of that. The the real question is why would anyone even know any of that stuff or care? Let's look at gold itself for a moment. It's bright and shiny, it doesn't rust, and it is very heavy. But those are the qualities of it. Even uh, much later, in fact, in this century, we found that it's also an excellent conductor of electricity. But that's not what gave gold value. That's just what makes gold contacts and electronics expensive. <laughs> because they want to use the gold or they'll mix it with copper or something so that they can get some of the properties that they're looking for. The point is that gold many, many, many thousands of years ago took on a value. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm, maybe because he wanted something of somebody else's. So you're like, hey, well, like, I have they, this and I'll give it you to you. He wanted something of value. Yeah, you wanted to be able to like say like, hey, like, I have this much value, you have that much value. I don't know. Things like All that. Right. Like, I'll give you this value for that. But I'll... other than gold by itself, I mean, look at the dogs. They don't care anything about gold. You might, in fact, have space aliens come invade us and have much higher technology that we have, but they're not interested in gold. In fact, some yeah. of the stories about uh, the aliens coming is because they wanted the gold off the planet Earth. But that's only because Earthlings telling stories because they value gold. Perhaps the aliens also value gold. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like because kind of, well, that alien society's placed a value on it or like we place a value on it, like society has, they've said. So all the value of gold is in the mind of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an important point to recognize that the value that we have on things, it lies there in the mind. That's where the, there's no real value in gold itself. It's not worth really, um, what, sixteen, eighteen hundred dollars an ounce. It's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, I mean everything. Just... Every property that gold has, there are other elements that have those properties. For instance, lead and gold weigh about the same thing, but gold is shiny. Okay, so why don't we just paint lead and value lead and only use gold as a paint? Yeah, I mean, it's a, well, lead's not very good for you, but <laughs> no, I get, I get what you're saying. Like, it's just like kind of arbitrary. Like, we were. Anyway. They want what? to keep it. It's back. I say people don't eat their, their. The reason that we know that is because of lead piping, because it's lead is so valueless that they won't make pipes out of it. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just because, like, we've said it's valuable, like, 
you know, if I wake up tomorrow with amnesia, I'm not going to like see gold. Well, I mean, I might, but like, I'm not going to see gold and be like, wow, that's worth a lot. I might be like, oh, this is like kind of shiny. That's kind of cool looking, but I'm not going to be like, ooh, I really want that, need that. All right. Like, so now we're looking at the fact that this emptiness, gold is empty. It really is empty of value. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's empty. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. But here we have all of these humans for all of these centuries working really hard to dig it out of the ground, refine it, put it into vaults to protect it from other people stealing it. Why? Yeah, but, yeah my relationship with it gives it a certain, like, um, opposite of emptiness. <laughs> I don't know. It gives it a weight um, in, like, a, a feeling, I guess. Okay. So maybe the weight of the gold then makes things feel substantial. Oh, sorry, I mean like physical weight. It gives it like a mental weight. Like when you look at it, you're like, ooh, that's gold. Like your greed kicks in. You're like, I want that gold. Like it, it has but like that's a, just a conditioning. It feels like a thing. The gold itself doesn't really mean anything yeah, unless you gold. have that conditioning. Yeah, if you didn't have the conditioning, you would just like, it'd be like a background noise. Okay, so... That's exactly the same thing that happens with some kids are conditioned to love sports. Mm -hmm. So they grow up as sports fans. And so they can't understand coronavirus shutting down their sports and not going to the team and all of that. To a whole bunch of other people don't care anything about sports at all. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Sports means nothing to them. So if coronavirus closed down all the sports, all we can say is, hmm, okay. Good idea. <laughs> While you have half of the people then going stir crazy because they want to go to the game, whatever that is, mm -hmm. all because of that conditioning. So you can begin to see how conditioned we really are. That this conditioning that I'm talking about is actually stored in the uh, the way that in the Buddhist language as the Sila Bhatta Paramasa, which is the second fetter. Mm -hmm. Which means now that we have to start investigating. That's in fact what you and I are doing right now is investigating emptiness to see that gold is empty. Mm -hmm. Sports, empty. It's got no meaning or value to it at all. Until someone adds that value. And that value is, is they like it or they want it. And so all things that have any value at all have a value emotionally only. How does it feel to the human? And that's what builds our skyscrapers and our bridges and our automobiles and our technology and everything is based upon feeling. So how we feel, except for one thing. We never actually examine and or investigate and or wake up and look at these feelings. We're always just looking at how can we uh, satisfy the feelings rather than investigating the feelings directly. So this is really what the Eightfold and Noble Path investigation is, is to begin to investigate not the value of gold on the outside because we recognize it's empty. Yeah. And so are all of the rules that determined the values of things. And so now we have to get a sort of a new rule system going. The new rule system is 
Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, right here in this moment. Mm-hmm. What is suffering right now and how to avoid it? Mm-hmm. All right. So if you're sitting there thinking, hmm, I really would like to buy a gold coin, that's Dukkha. Why? Because I'm unsatisfied without the gold coin. I want to buy one. I want one. Mm-hmm. But the next thought is, I don't need a gold coin. I'm good without it. Then that would be a wholesome thought. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I, I get that, like... a. Uh, dang, I'm just trying to come up with a way to say say it without saying I so much, but I know. <laughs> but, dang, uh, yeah. Uh, no, I mean I, I like that. I mean like that emptiness is. It's okay is, to use conventional language. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, I've had like brief glimpses of that, and it's been very peaceful and nice. I don't know how to describe it. Right. I mean, probably not the whole picture. I'm not claiming like the whole picture or anything, but like, yeah, like I've been able to like uh, in the moments where I've been able to like see past that like emotional like attachment, like uh, there's just like this calm like place that's very like nothingy, but like not in a nothingness and like not like a void really or not like a I guess I thought it was going to be like a I don't know, my vision disappears and I'm just like in a, an abyss of nothingness that like is uncomprehensible. But I mean, I don't know, there's just been some moments like during meditation where it's just been uh, like, you know, I'm not at, like I'm just sitting there and like everything's okay and peaceful around me. Um, and it's like that connection that like, ooh, like I need to go to work, like isn't there. Or like, I'm, I don't know, like I'm not good enough or like all these like hindrances have been kind of like absent or some of them anyway. And yeah, I mean, yeah, so like I was just trying to say like, yeah, I'm on, I, I believe like I'm on board with kind of what you're saying here where it's like, yeah, that like there is this like kind of veil, there's that kind of like, um, the gold has no value other than what we put on it. Okay. Another quality that um, we're looking at is the issue of time. The Buddha gave himself a name and he used it often. He used the name Tathagata. And you can see in various suttas the Tathagata this and that. And, and, and by uh, a late stage, that name also became exalted when in fact he was not wanting or intending it in the original for it to become exalted. The word Tathagata comes from the word Tathata and that it's translated in the old uh, English of the um, Polytech Society as thusness. But that's not a really good, easy way to understand it. What we're talking about is this is it, or the here now, or the present moment. And the Pali word for that is ta-ta-ta. means right now. That's the secret. That's okay. Yeah. Tathagata, okay, or Tathagata. The Buddha called himself Tathagata, and it's sometimes tra- translated as "thus gone one." 
because they're just taking the words itself, you know, ta-ta-ta, ta-ta-ta-ta, um, uh, uh, is thus. But when, when you put it together in an understandable way instead of a phraseology like thus gone one, or the one who has gone to thusness is actually an indication that other people are not in the here now, but they are too. But what the uh, the Tathagata is actually pointing at is literally to be here now, to be present, as opposed to thinking about the past and thinking about the present or the future, but to be here now. This is basically the root of the teaching. Mm -hmm. The investigation that needs to be done is to investigate right now, the here now. What's in and what's out, but mostly what's inside, what's going on right now. That's what needs to be investigated. Hmm. And so um, when we bring things into the here now, then we can look at that unification of mind as something that, uh, let's say, a practitioner will be in sometimes, and sometimes he's not. And the more he practices and the better and more skilled he comes, he's more often in that state of unification of mind. Hmm. Now, that unification of mind generally has five factors built into it. And the five factors that are built into unification of mind are also the same five factors that are built into first jhana in the sense of the, the actual classical definition of first jhana is these parts of the Eightfold and Oval Path, that, especially in relationship to Anapanasati. Okay. So we can actually think of it like this is, one who is unified mind is in a state similar to or the same as being in the first jhana. Okay, what, then what would the difference between the other jhanas be? Well, I mean, I guess, like, we're not, when we say emptiness, we're not talking about, like, Most it's on an end goal. people in the West, your Western technology and your Western conditioning will come to the point of saying two, no, two donuts is better than one. Okay. And three donuts is better than two. That's fair. Yeah. And four donuts is better than three. Let's yeah. not go any higher than that, okay? Because now we're making... <laughs> we're really having some Krispy Kreme now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But that's the mentality that we have. Yeah. Rather than looking at it from the perspective of the Buddha of looking for a middle path. Okay. Because a lot of people don't know that uh, that they're looking at exalted states and uh, high jhanas and these kind of things. This is what the Buddha did and rejected it before he was a Buddha. In rejected. fact, he was so good. He was so good at it that one school wanted him to become the teacher, and he rejected that. And then he went to another school and practiced even higher jhanas, and they wanted him to be the teacher because the actual master had died. And he refused and said, this is not what I'm looking for. Is it just like a trap or like a, something you get the pulled jhanas into? Are the, 
right? Though jhanas are especially a trap for Westerners. Because they feel because really good? or these, No, not because it feels really good. It's because we give it value. Okay, yeah. Oh, okay. It's like gold. It's just like gold. Because the Western mind will hear these terms and they'll and they'll think uh, through their Christian mystical um, foundations of our society and look very high, where in fact, uh, by looking far high, we're actually looking for it far away. Yeah, you're like, ooh, I need to progress. I need to like get to the. I'm at like this level now, I need to be at this level to like really get it. And that the second jhana is better than the first. Because it's high, yeah, okay, but, okay. All right. But there's an important quality. And that is by the time we've gotten into the second jhana, we have lost our ability to think. In mm -hmm. especially verbal language that we still are thinking in uh, uh, a deeper language, but we have lost our uh, verbal ability. That's after the first one? The second one. Second one, okay. The whole point about the second one is, is to, um, just to uh, still the discursive thought so mm -hmm. that we can then deal and manage not with the Manu part of the brain, but with the uh, Chitta part of the brain or the, uh, the anterior cortex, or our source of feelings. Mm -hmm. But if you go all the way to the fourth jhana and stay, if you stayed in fourth jhana for 24 hours, you more than likely would come out of it in the morgue. In the fifth jhana? Or, or in the uh, uh, ICU. Because what, you're just like shutting your brain because down? Oh, you're comatose. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Dang. So these are like pretty, well, intense states of like, well, I don't know if intense is the right word. They seem alluring. Well, that's the whole point is when we give value to them, then they become alluring. But if you look at it more the way that, because the Buddha really went there and did that. And that most people, once they're practicing the Eightfold Noble Path correctly and really understand Paticca Samapada and understand how the mind works, then they can, let us say, um, experiment and piddle with the jhanas, but no one wants to stay there long term. Okay. Anyone who's going to sit in a cave for nine years obviously wants something. That's true, yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely, they'd be like wanting, they'd, yeah, there'd have to be some desire there to get rid of something, or like, uh, desire to become enlightened, be like, I'm mm -hmm. going to go sit in this cave until I figure it out, something like that. Exactly. So that, now we're at a level of desire or wanting something that we don't have. Okay. Do, do you, you did mention, like, people, people do do these things, but it's more of like a, you don't want to be there for very long, like... Um, the worst is not that there are people who are doing these things. I have met people, not met, talked to them, but met in the sense of standing in the back of the room or in the cave with them and watched. Okay, yeah. so I've been around this kind of folk. These guys are 
quite rare and worth a story. I mean, this is news. <laughs> mm-hmm. Man bites dog is, uh, uh, is big news. Dog bites man is not big news. So the point that these guys do exist makes them newsworthy, but it doesn't make them common. Nor does it give them value. That's fair. All right. So. So do do like people? I guess like uh, like uh, do you think there? Well, I mean, I was gonna say, is there value in these like things? But like, would you like? Do people have to go there to like see what they the are in Buddha, order to come back? The Buddha calls these high jhana states as a pleasant abiding. Okay. Now, you could think of that in two ways. One is pleasant abiding. Yeah, let's all go get dressed, take a bath, and go there. Or <laughs> the other way of looking at it is cynically. Oh, that's all it is. It's just, just a pleasant abiding, mm-hmm. which may have value. But if the guy comes out of that state, where is he going to go to mentally? Back to hindrances? I don't know. Well, if he goes back to hindrances, then he's back into the normal state. He's an average, ordinary person, and of course he doesn't like things like that. He would rather be back in his pleasant abiding, so back into the jhanas he goes, back into his cave he goes. Or like, would you see people be like, come out of that and be like, oh, this is what enlightenment is, or like, this is what spiritual attainment is? No, by that time they kind of understand what's going on. Mm-mm. No, but there's a bigger question that I'm trying to get around to, but you won't let me, so I'm going to interrupt you. And no, sorry, yeah, yeah, the bigger up. issue, and you can see this issue out there in the fields, uh, you can see it in responses uh, to um, uh, the communiques, the reddits, all of this kind of stuff that's on the internet, is, is that we have not just a small but a huge number of people who are wannabes. They want to be John dudes, and some of them are working, working, working really hard to get there. Yeah. And so they want to go deep into meditation. And some of them will say, oh, yeah, when I'm deep in meditation, there's where I can get great insights because I can really see the dukkha. All right. Yeah, I see, I see that a lot. Deep, there's a lot of people like that. Okay, all right, you got it. The whole point of the hindrances is to see them quickly, to see them early, and to throw them out, not let them stay there. These are not to be investigated while one is going deep. Generally, the deep that they're going into is because they're not breathing very well, and so they've gotten their their mind into a, uh, let us say, a deep state that's closer to torpor than it is a clear investigation. Mm-hmm. And some people do recognize that that's drowsiness, but a lot of people mistake that drowsiness for good meditation. Yeah. And they're really out of it. I mean, if you generally when you're asleep itself, it's, it's pleasant. But this is not jhana. Most of the people who are practicing meditation in the West are not practicing correctly, and they're not going anywhere near jhana, they're going closer and closer to just sitting there asleep. Yeah. 
our job, Anapanasati, is to wake up. <laughs> That's what we're really working with, is to wake up. How can you wake up? Completely wake up. This is the, the, the training of Sati, is to wake up, to do the investigation, to see what's going on, to throw the hindrances out, and to get ourselves into a good state and a deep breath. And we can do that in one, two breaths, three or four breaths, something like that. Uh, in some cases, things linger on, like uh, um, uh, a deep state of, of sadness. But even that can be breathed out over five or six, ten breaths, whatever. People need to experiment with it. But we can sit there and watch these things, watch these feelings just melt away. And we can be in the state of uh, satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Now, um, basically, there are two primary ways of getting the mind into this unified state. And that it has a number of factors to it. One of them is, is that the body is really relaxed. We're relaxed and comfortable. We're not uptight or tense in any way at all. Another quality, but I'm not using it, by the way, don't look at it in the sense of this is cause, effect, or the order. But rather, in a way, this is almost reverse order. So one of the, one of the benefits of going through this cause-effect, one of the effects of it is, is the body is really relaxed. Mm -hmm. We're relaxed. We're satisfied in the state of sukha. We have a bit of excitement about it that we're anticipating, that we really understand what's, uh, what's happening in the mind. This can be done in two major ways. One of them is this way of meditation. And here is where we're actually focusing to get the mind free from the hindrances that are naturally there. But there's another way to start with the hindrances not there at all. And that is when the student is actually focused on something. So basically what I'm talking about is, is that when a teacher or um, one who knows the Dhamma is teaching the Dhamma, the student is paying close attention to what the, the teacher is saying. Mm -hmm. And when they do, then they get it in. If they're not paying close attention or get it in, then the mind starts to wander, which brings up questions, and then it's hard to get them into uh, a unified state because they've got questions. What are questions? Doubts. But when you're being able to follow what the teacher is saying and follow straight, that means that now the mind is free from hindrances because what we are thinking about is wholesome thoughts. The Dhamma itself is quite wholesome. So in a way, just listening to a Dhamma talk is a way of getting the mind free from hindrances. So off we go. Yeah. Getting ourselves relaxed, listening to what, is the, uh, what the teacher is saying, and it becomes in, sometimes inspiring. Inspiring in the sense of, ah, I got it. Or, wow, I understand. Uh, uh, these, uh, sometimes people can call this an insight, but an insight the way, and in fact, that's what the word Vipassana means is insight. But the, in the regard that we're talking about here, 
inside is very dry or it's not meaningful. In this regard, um, uh, inspiration or inspiring the student, that's a better way of looking at it. It's not a Vipassana moment he has, it's an inspirational moment he has. It's insight. Bango, whack, I got it. It's like PD, like you have the energy to, or like the desire to, like, when it, well, I guess not like that, PD, but yeah, I get it. Yeah. Exactly. So with that inspiration comes joy. With that joy comes, I can do this, which pity arises. When the pity arises, then we can become relaxed. I've got it. And then we wind up in a state of satisfaction or sukha. And we're really content and we're really satisfied with what the teacher is saying. And that is first jhana. Not a big deal. Not exalted. It's a very, very clear-minded place to be. This is the middle path that the Buddha was talking about. And so there's a problem when we talk about jhanas because there's such an amazing difference between first jhana and these higher jhanas. And I only use the word higher because of the order and occurrence because you cannot do the second jhana until you have the first jhana. You cannot have first jhana until the mind is clear and focused and free from hindrances. Okay, in fact, the whole point of having a mind that's clear and focused and free from hindrances and the joy and the satisfaction are there that I really understand what the teacher is saying and that's the state of first jhana. It may be a begin. It may be this, the uh, the path of first jhana. Certainly not the fruit. The fruit because the fruit is when you feel really good. That would be when the student goes, ah, I got it! I got it! I got it! Now we're really into the fruit of the first jhana. Okay, so this is the way uh, that we can actually talk ourselves into first jhana. That we do not have to do all of this hard practice sitting meditation on the floor and all of that, that we can actually just focus the mind on the Dhamma, because by focusing on the Dhamma, we are automatically free from hindrances right then. So then the next one would go would be that when someone is teaching the Dhamma, when one is teaching the Dhamma and focused on the Dhamma and he's intent to tell the Dhamma correctly, the teacher will naturally go into the first jhana while he is talking because he's focused on wholesome and he really enjoys the talk. Mm. Another way that that can happen is uh, in the chanting, especially if the chanting is done in the native language because the chanting, we, we mull over the Dhamma, we recite the Dhamma, we repeat the Dhamma over and over again, and we begin to get really joyful with it, mm -hmm. because we're also thinking about only the wholesome. Now, that's not necessarily the case if the chanting that's done is in a foreign language, because people do memorize. I know a lot of people who can memorize a huge number of sutras that don't understand anything they say. That's what but I it just doesn't mean anything to him. Doesn't mean much. Hmm. 
But if the, if the sutta uh, means something and you really understand that sutta, then when you're uh, uh, reciting it, you can come up into tears of joy. <laughs> it's so wonderful, Vadama. But it's also possible while you're driving the car that you're paying close attention, you're focused, you're watching the road, and you're also thinking of the Dhamma, mulling over the Dhamma. You get really focused, still, the body is relaxed, and you can actually go into first jhana while driving a car. I can't believe you brought that up. Like, I, like yeah, there's like a feel like... When I would thinking, recommend people doing it in first jhana. Your insurance rates for the whole nation will go down because people are watching what they're doing. No, I mean, it just feels like if I'm occupied or focused, like, I can get into, like, a, there's, like, a moment where, like, um, I'm not so infatuated with, like, my problems or, like, the kind of, there's, like, a, a lightness or, like, a, a light feeling where they can kind of melt away and I kind of just, like, felt a little awkward about it. <laughs> it's like when I'm driving or something silly like that. Get out of your own way. Exactly. That's exactly what we're talking about, is having a mind that's free. Yeah, and I guess, like, yeah, thank you for the other explanation you were talking about, kind of like the middle path. Um, um, middle path or, like, um, I don't know. I guess I was, like, kind of... I've always been expecting, like... Um, something crazy to happen or whatever like if i get it or like some ridiculousness but there's just been like the significant moments to me have always been really mundane and like very normal and just very like uh yeah just not not like supernatural feeling or like not out there really grounded in our, in our culture we are event driven let me give you some examples of events. It would be like an election, or signing a contract, or taking out a loan, or buying a house, or uh, graduating from school. These are the kinds of things that we look at as events, and these events, we give meaning to them, or value. We give value and meaning to these events. So when we start to practice Dhamma, we're also going to be looks for, looking for events that we can give meaning to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Which yeah, now means like, the yeah, Western me. mind is, means that now Sotapan is no longer a process or a state of mind in, uh, by the moment, but rather it's an event that occurred and before I was not, the event happens, and now I am. Okay? Like in school, right? We're a student, and then the event happens, graduation, and now I'm not a student. Hmm. So uh, we're very, very event-oriented. Yeah. And so what people are often looking for in their uh, meditation is they're looking for an event. Yeah, like, I get that. I've, I've had that desire. I've had that one. Uh-huh. All right. Looking for an event is suffering. Yeah. Wanting something you don't have. In this case, these guys don't even know what it is that they want to have. They just want something. <laughs> and when we can recognize that wanting, 
then we can drop it. Yes. Be here now and just enjoy the moment that we don't have to have some event in order to feel good. That we can just feel good because I know how to do it. Yeah, I don't have to have some like breakthrough or like I don't need to like see God or like. There's nothing to break through, therefore, there yeah. is no breakthrough event. Yeah, I, yeah, thank you for. No, I really appreciate it. Like the. This is this is only this moment. Yeah. And this moment is not an event because it's, it's exactly the same as the last this moment. Mm-hmm. And there it is again. Now a new one's come by. And wow, <laughs> another and another. And so uh, everything winds up being because um, of, of that. Everything is ordinary. Nothing has any value other than what you give it. And you give things value based upon what you like, which means how you feel, liking and not liking. And so this is a very important key then in the process of beginning to understand how we feel. But we'll wait until next time before we talk about that kind of stuff. But right now, the important thing is that we finished off this Eightfold Noble Path so that you know it in the way of the cause and effect and the fact that our good behavior, our, our marvelous morality is the result of wisdom, not the creation of wisdom. Wait, did we make it through the other four today? Yeah. Right, oh, sorry. Right view. Yeah, right view. Right effort. Okay. Right Saudi. shot, the big one, yeah. and right attitude. Okay. And what were the other four? Well, that gives rise to unification of mind. Oh, those are the factors. These are the uh, requisite factors. Requisites, okay. The requisites for the factor of unification of mind. And the features then of the unification of mind is one's right uh, actions. Don't harm people, don't kill people, don't mess with someone else's lady, all of that kind of stuff. In fact, don't mess with the ladies at all. They don't like it. <laughs> oh, so it's like the mirror of the first four. Well, no. it's Sorry. right action, yeah. right speech, and right livelihood of the last three. Okay. Three plus gotcha. five. But these but right livelihood is a an, a natural outcome of one's right speech and right action. And that's because we understand cause and effect. And so we would no longer, I get it, yes. I see uh-huh. what you mean. And the reason that you're no longer going around doing wrong behaviors and wrong uh, uh, speech that will lead then to try to make money off of your wrong speech and therefore have wrong livelihood is mm-hmm. because the mind itself is not unified. That's the mind of greed, it's the mind of uh, uh, desire, ill will, and it's the mind of ignorance. Hmm. So this unification of mind then has the second noble truth nailed. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's not an ignorant mind, it's a wise mind, it's paying attention, it's looking at what's going on. It knows what it knows and it knows what it doesn't know. But most people are in the state of they don't even know what they don't know. And so they make stuff up. Yeah, that's right. But we begin to know what we don't know. Now that's wisdom. Okay, yeah. 
is to know what we don't know. So, uh, with that unification of mind and that wisdom, our behavior is going to naturally be at a, at a very high quality. Mm-hmm. And in fact, that's how the noble mind would be known, is by the quality of the behavior, because that's the only thing that anyone ever has anything to judge by. You can't really call inside one's mind. Mm-hmm. Air how the teachers would like to do that, <laughs> sometimes the police, but sorry, you can't do it. Only you can call inside your own mind. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And that's kind of like why you would judge a teacher based off of like their life, not necessarily like a moment that you have with them. Mm-hmm. Or like so, I know, just a common pattern or something I hear. Or like, you do, yeah, I mean, it's going to, they're going to express it in like the way they live, like the way they talk, uh, like et cetera. Not, not so much mm-hmm. just in like, oh, they can get into second jhana or third jhana or whatever. Yeah, there's no reason to advertise any of that kind of stuff because uh, uh, it doesn't really have any value. Dang. Yeah. Yeah, a lot to think about. Uh, yeah, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that, that means now that you can understand that it's the state of mind that you're in is the most important thing for your meditation. Yeah. And if you have a mind of Dhamma, then these feelings of uh, comfort and security and safety can arise quite easily for you, and your body will be relaxed. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, like, and that I am capable of doing that. Like, and you're right. That's right yeah. attitude. You can do this. Or, I can so, do this, yes. Um, it's not complicated. This <laughs> is not exalted. Um, how to say it? Uh I've forgotten some of the words that some of the translators use, but when they use exalted words uh, for samadhi, that means that they really don't know what they're talking about because they're using exalted words that don't fit. Hmm. And by using exalted words, then the reader, when they read these exalted words, they wind up confused. Because these states are actually attainable, and once you start attaining it, they become easy to attain. This first jhana is a remarkable state of, uh, of being, but everybody's in the first jhana from time to time. Sometimes many people are many people could be in first jhana for a moment or two once a day. Yeah, it's just so like easy to miss. It's so su- it's like a very subtle really thing. That it's... What's going on? Unless you really keep track of that, that's part of the investigation. Where's your pity? <laughs> where's your relaxation? Where's your uh, where's your contentment? Where's your safety? You know, let's gather those factors. Make sure they're together. And when those factors are together, that's the state that you want to be in. Yeah. And you can still think. In fact, now you really can think because you can apply the mind and direct the mind to keep it in the wholesome stuff. In fact, it already was that way if it was in the Dhamma. That was an important connection that a lot of people, including me, long time, because I was thinking that uh, it's kind of like we do meditation in order to understand the Dhamma. No, actually, if you understand the Dhamma correctly, 
you're in meditation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, it's kind of interesting because it's like, it causes you to then behave that way. Like, it, mm -hmm. it then causes you, because, like, you understand how things are, that you would, like, you would be you in, like, a more meditative state. Yeah. And once you get inspired, and the rest will happen automatically. Or let yeah. us say that, uh, especially if you're, uh, that's the Dhamma that you're working with. Hmm. So, you, once, once that moment or that point, and, in fact, Shati can be thought of as that point of inspiration. Aha, uh -huh, the wake up. I got it. Uh, does anaponasati, does it need to be done sitting or can it be done laying down or like anywhere or we is it something? We do it in some, other, some, in some way to make it easy to do. Okay. So being in seclusion, being away from other people is the best thing. Mm -hmm. But remember then also is, is that we also want to seclude ourselves from hindrances and the Dhamma is a really good mental refuge. Think of it like that. Yeah, while we're thinking about the Dhamma, we're not in hindrance. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And so now that we're thinking of Dhamma, we're actually applying the mind and sustaining the mind on the Dhamma, and we're building the factors. Okay. And then that point of inspiration comes by. Aha, I got it. Wow, that's great. And yes. you've had that with your book sometimes. Sometimes you'll read a book and and a passage will drop like a lead weight. Just bang! <laughs> and I got it! Wow, what a good way to say that. Okay? So that those are those, inspiring, uh, those inspirational moments where people will naturally fall into the first jhana, but they don't know it. But now yeah. you do. Now you know. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like, I've, I've experienced that, like, reading books, or like you said, uh, or, yeah, I mean, or listening to a Donna talk, or, like, talking to you or something like that, or just, like, where you, like, it, yeah, there's a certain quality to that. Yeah, it, it's interesting that that's, like, first jhana, and, and it is very subtle, but it is also, like, pretty profound at the same time. Until you really recognize its features and factors, and then we begin to build them. We begin to, our right effort then is uh, being exercised by making sure that we're doing the investigation that needs to be done. And that investigation is going to be uh, asking questions like, where's that, where's that pity? Where's that sukha? Where's that okay. relaxed body? Where is that stuff? Let's get that stuff together, okay? Yeah, that's interesting. And you can just bring it. Or you can just like gather those things, and you can gather the factors of jhana and get your get your mind in a uni, unified state. Hmm. And that's the eightfold noble path, not these higher jhanas. Yeah, that makes yeah. Okay, so just getting into first jhana and then enjoying the heck out of it, and then you find yourself you're not in the first jhana, get back into it again. Awesome. Go enjoy your life already. <laughs> yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah, from the from the vantage point of the sukha of first jhana. Mm. All right. Well, we'll talk to you later. Go yeah, practice I'll talk now. To you later. Got I will. something to do. <laughs> I will tell you. All right.
I rolled All right. Have a good okay, evening. Man. See you. Bye.